0: The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill-considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep-deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it.
1: In your practice of medicine, I'm curious, or your future practice of medicine, would it be better to be able to move things with your mind or be able to read minds?
2: Oh, definitely read minds. Yeah. Uh-huh. things.
3: Mostly, this is an ethical quandary for me. I, I don't feel like I would... Feel comfortable taking something from somebody's mind without their permission, mm-hmm. and boy, howdy! If I had that power, I would abuse the heck out of it. I but if you, if,
1: if, if it was like a permission thing, like like they could they could write permissions to their head and be like, "I'm going to give my doctor access," <laughs>
3: and just like check this, in this box in, to, in this to, moment, to send it <laughs> yeah. telepathically to your doctor. <laughs> yes. That would be really helpful. Yep,
1: <laughs> that'd be handy. It okay.
0: yeah, would save a lot of time.
1: Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have to do the history, right? Basically, yeah. yeah. yeah.
3: Can I can I transmit thoughts too? Because I would really like to never have to do an oral report again mm. and just stand in front of my attending and just blast it into his head Oh, that would be right along that
1: would be hmm
0: well you'd like a hook up to your computer that you could just uh, yeah oh yeah that would be really nice Think
4: oh, no epic. yeah that'd be yeah. great Word the way
0: that my thoughts are organized
3: though I was that's kidding. a good point
4: <laughs> people would be like what <laughs>
1: if you're at all neurodivergent you're gonna have a little trouble yeah. with that <laughs> Uh, it's about your mind uh, Dr. <laughs> Fallon let's let's have a little talk
2: you're going to have to go back to using your mouth again <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're taking away you're... we're taking away dragon psychokinesis yeah. <laughs> from you your permissions are done
0: <laughs> meandering in the margins of medicine it's the Shortcoat podcast
4: weird news
5: fresh views
4: helpful clues and
5: interviews by students for students
3: subscribe to our weekly show at the
1: welcome back to the short Code podcast it's a show that gives you an inside look at medical school from the students drinking from that fire hose a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine I'm Dave Etler. with me today in the SCP studio a special guest Dr. Michael Graham is a professor of radiology and radiation oncology at the University of Iowa. But hang on, is he a radiologist? Is he a radiation oncologist? Well, it turns out he's a nuclear medicine physician at the university. And the inspiration for our new series about specialties that are less well-known by medical students and pre-meds and people who might eventually want to go into them. Dr. Graham emailed me several weeks ago to tell us about a shortage of nuclear medicine physicians in the U.S., something that seems to be worsening, and I thought, well, let's talk about it. Welcome to the show, Dr. Graham. Thank you. We're also joined by the usual gaggle of medical student co-hosts, each special in their own way, full of promise, hopes, dreams, and wonder. She moisturizes and exfoliates, exfoliates every day. It's M1 Fallon Jung. Hello. He plucks and tweezes as needed. It's PA1 Noah Vasquez. Good to be here. Her favorite foot cream contains shea butter. It's PA1 Olivia Quinby. Hello. And he shaves not because the patriarchy tells him to, but because James Charles tells him to. It's M2 Jeff Goddard. (laughs)
3: Never heard truer thing said.
1: <laughs> so yes, thank
3: you for coming,
1: Dr. Graham. Um, maybe you should tell us a little bit about what nuclear medicine is.
0: Sure, nuclear medicine is the use of radioactive isotopes in medicine, mm-hmm. both for diagnostic purposes and for therapy. In diagnosis, there's sort of three categories of studies we do: flow of stuff, and that can be blood, CSF. gastric contents lymph bile urine a huge part of medicine is involved in the flow of stuff from here to there Mm. we can actually quantitate the cerebral blood flow and myocardial blood flow in terms of mils per gram per minute and we can evaluate flow of all these other areas by putting a little bit of radioactivity into it and seeing how well it moves the typical example is gastric emptying studies with radioactive scrambled eggs. Something a study we do every day in nuclear medicine.
4: Radioactive scrambled. Eggs. Do they get ketchup or like hot sauce too, or they, just they eggs? No, mm. just, no just radioactive. Get piece, eggs?
0: They get a piece of toast with butter oh. on it. Okay, oh, that's kind. Uh,
4: and a little radioactivity. Yeah, so,
0: <laughs> that's where the spice comes <laughs> from. Yes. So that's one of the categories. the, the next category is metabolic uh, agents. Uh, where we can label an agent that actually enters into a metabolic pathway, and the best example of that is fluorodeoxyglucose, which we use in PET imaging, which is taken up just like glucose, metabolized just like glucose, and we get a picture of glucose metabolism. It's particularly useful for tumors. Yeah. Third category is receptors, and that's a huge area that is where there's a lot of progress and growth. In the Probably the the two best examples are for neuroendocrine tumors. We have an agent that targets that and is used for therapy and for prostate cancer. There's a quite a new agent that is still uh, growing in terms of appreciation, and it's having a significant impact on the management of prostate cancer. And then on the therapy side, we can label these receptor-based agents with much more powerful radionuclides that are beta emitters or alpha emitters. Typically, it's uh, for tumors, and it goes to the tumor, it sits on the tumor, and then it explodes, as it were, and delivers high radiation dose directly to the tumor. And those can be incredibly effective. The first agent, that was actually the start of nuc was I-131 therapy for thyroid cancer. That actually started in the 1940s but we've moved well beyond that now with these receptor-based targeted agents.
1: So when you hear of somebody getting radiotherapy, is that a nuclear medicine? That that's nuclear medicine? Usually not,
0: there's external beam radiotherapy and that's what radiation oncologists do mostly. They do something called brachytherapy where they put uh, radioactive seeds into an organ and let it irradiate it. Mm. But ours are what are called unsealed sources that are usually injected intravenously. Okay.
2: So I have a question for you. Sure. Um, as just like a mostly layperson, when it comes to specifically radiation, generally I think, well, like if you're eating radioactive scrambled eggs or you're getting something radioactive injected into your bloodstream, like it can't be all that good for you. But I've also heard of things like background radiation and that sort of thing, or like the radiation that you get from x-rays. Can you sort of classify... The amount of radiation you're getting, for example, in your scrambled eggs or in like intravenous injections, versus background radiation, versus yeah. like an X-ray.
3: Well, you can compare them to bananas if you would like. I hear that <laughs> I hear that people like to do that.
0: Bananas are slightly radioactive, but that's not the usual comparison we use.
5: <laughs>
0: <laughs> background radiation is about three millisieverts per year. And the amount of radiation you get, say, from a gastric emptying study, is about 5 millisieverts. Okay. In most of the studies we do, the radiation that the patient gets is on the order of one or possibly two years of background radiation. I
2: see.
0: There's the dangers of low-dose radiation are not well-defined the assumption is made that the effect is linear right down to zero, and they it from the effects of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, bombs. That's a huge extrapolation, and there is actually a lot of evidence that low-dose radiation is not particularly harmful, and that's because the DNA repair mechanism keeps up with it. And so the Amount of radiation people get in our various studies. There's uh, in all of the certainly in the diagnostic studies. There's no evidence at all that is is dangerous that it causes more tumors or anything like that. When we give high dose uh, therapy, then it's a different story. But we are treating a cancer that is likely to kill the patient within the next few years. And the risk is justifiable. Yeah.
1: So you're treating something that exists right now and that is very dangerous with something that eh, might cause problems later down the road. But it, it, but let's let's deal with the problem we've got in front of us and, well, and right. take take a small risk. I,
3: sure. I think it would be reasonable and correct me if you disagree um, to say that everything has um, an unsafe dose. Right. Everything is toxic at the right quantity. I mean. Water toxicity is a thing. Right? Sure. If you drink too much water, you will die. I've unfortunately I've seen it. Um, that the, all of this is to say that any medical intervention has inherent risks. Um, any thing that you do in life has inherent risks, and you, you weigh the benefits um, against those risks. And uh, if the benefits are there, we go forward. Whether that be surgery, whether that be um, taking a statin, whether that's nuclear medicine, it's it's weighing the pros and the cons and saying like. Like you said like that, yeah, this has potential to do damage, but it has so much potential to keep you going now, which is the goal. Yeah. That's fair.
0: Well, and that's relevant to the fundamental principle in nuclear medicine that it's a tracer technique, that it's microscopic quantities of uh, agents which might be toxic if given in larger doses. But we give milligram microgram levels mm-hmm. and sometimes less than micrograms of actual activity because our detectors are so sensitive.
1: So when we spoke um, leading up to this episode, you talked about how concerned you were about the future of nuclear medicine. Give us some idea of why you're concerned
0: about it. Well, it's probably the most obvious symptom at the moment is the fairly large number of jobs that are open for uh, typically mid-career nuclear medicine people mm-hmm. there are about 20 or so jobs throughout the country in academic sites looking for mid-career people and they're unable to fill these jobs 20
1: doesn't sound like much but no
0: but this is a small specialty yeah at we, we typically graduate or typically a hundred people a year take the board exam and become qualified in nuclear medicine Most of those people, don't go into academic nuclear medicine. And certainly not enough to be able to fill these slots. Mm. And many of them are radiologists who have done nuclear medicine as part of a effort to become board certified in radiology, but actually have no intention of actually doing nuclear medicine.
1: So that was the other thing that you mentioned is that nuclear medicine right now is part of radiology it's a a subspecialty of radiology is that
0: well that's not entirely correct there there is a subspecialty in radiology called nuclear radiology Uh and there's nuclear medicine nuclear medicine is a separate specialty it's one of the 24 specialties of medicine there's the american board of nuclear medicine Uh, there's uh, residency programs uh, at this point, at thirty six uh, universities uh, in the United States, uh, the radiologists who, the standard radiology training incorporates four months of nuclear medicine. And the nuclear radiology program is an additional year of nuclear medicine that allows them to become certified as in nuclear radiology. The nuclear medicine residency is three years, and especially with uh, therapy developing, this targeted therapy business developing, you certainly need more training than just uh, four months or even one year. In general, the one-year trained people are are reasonably competent, but they almost never become academic. Which is
1: where you're going to find a lot of nuclear medicine. That's where you're going to find it. Yes, and
0: what we would like to see is uh, more U.S. medical students uh, going into nuclear medicine. Uh, Most of the residents in nuclear medicine, and this is certainly true at the University of Iowa, are foreign medical graduates who are qualified in radiology and who are undertaking a program that is sponsored by the uh, American Board of Radiology that allows them to do four fellowships in radiology, and then their board qualified in radiology in the United States and can take the exam, pass it, and practice radiology in the United States. So they do four fellowships, and they'll do one in musculoskeletal, one in neuro, one in pediatrics, and one in nuclear medicine, and then they go off and they do Musculoskeletal, or chest, or whatever, but rarely do nuclear medicine. So how come? It's because it's convenient, and that's the way the system is set up, and and it's been.
1: What is it about the system? I guess that. Well, that gets in the way
0: over the past twenty years. What has happened is that radiology, nuclear medicine, is generally in the department of radiology. Mm-hmm. Uh, And so when a nuclear medicine physician is looking to get a job, they're going to be hired by a radiologist and generally the chief of radiology at a university or in a private group. During the last 20 years, there's been a huge preference on their part to hire people trained in both nuclear medicine and radiology so that they can cover the nuclear medicine part and They can also do some radiology. And an important emphasis that they've made in this situation is that they can take call in radiology. I see. And that's an important part of radiology. And so a pure nuclear medicine person can do the nuclear medicine, and they can do it well, but they can't take radiology call. They take nuclear medicine call, which is actually much less onerous, but not radiology call. And so for really the past two decades, there's been a huge reticence to hire pure nuclear medicine people. And so there's been a huge reticence on the part of medical students to go into that field because they're not going to get a job at the end. Uh, And so we've had real difficulty recruiting medical students. Mm. And now what's happened is the field has shifted such that uh, there's a real need for pure medical, uh, nuclear medicine people, uh, especially on the therapy side of things. I was going to
1: say, I mean, as radiologists... Yeah, radiologists, radiologists aren't,
0: aren't very interested in therapy. Yeah. Radiation oncologists are, uh, and they're going to be participating in this uh, targeted radiotherapy business that we're doing and, and developing now. But they're not going to be the driving force. Nuclear medicine is very definitely the driving force in the development of these new uh, theranostic agents. And that's what the, the term is used to describe these new agents. That are, There are diagnostic tar- targeted versions, and then there are therapeutic targeted versions.
4: Kind of got a follow-up to that. So... Due to this increase of jobs and availability, do, do you see PAs taking up that, feel like helping fill that void because of their ability to kind of jump between things? Well, or, it, like there's a,
0: another group of people uh, involved in nuclear medicine, that's nuclear medicine technologists. Okay. Uh, and they are the ones who actually greet the patient, inject the activity, position them under the camera, acquire the images. Process the images and then give them to the nuclear medicine physicians. There's something called advanced practice technologists who get more involved in that. But uh, PAs do assist us in cardiac nuclear medicine, and they're actually quite useful for us. And we've had, in the past, we had a PA who was overseeing the nuclear work and teaching the students in that area. But it's it's kind of a small fraction of the field where PAs have an impact.
4: Could, could you see that kind of expanding due to this need or?
0: It, well, it, it's there's an increasing need for sort of nursing level people, and PAs would sort of fall into this area in in the therapy, overseeing the therapy, uh, taking care of the patients, initiating. Uh, care in adverse reactions there is a possibility that pas could be a part of that but currently that's not really the way things have been organized
1: so therapy is the area to keep an eye on in that regard that's
0: exactly right Mm -hmm. yeah that's
3: where you guys would help so i'm gonna i'm gonna approach this from an economic standpoint because i'm a nerd
1: none of us (laughs) are nerds
4: Uh, The rest of us. You guys
3: are just so cool. You can fill the nerd role in this. (laughs) Somebody has to. You're right. Thank you. So I'm just trying to think of the logistics. I'm going to use a different specialty. I'm going to use cardiology. So we want, as a general rule, we have as a society feel like it's really good to have a cardiologist be on staff at the county hospital, right? The downside to this cardiologist being on staff at the county hospital is that there aren't really necessarily enough inpatients for this cardiologist to be useful all of the time. Right. And so he ends up taking calls for other things or which I think is far worse. He doesn't or she doesn't get to practice all of the skills that they might need. They're not going to see the cases in a high enough volume in order to stay fresh, uh, to stay competent, to provide the care that they need. I have I've heard the argument that it would make a lot more sense to take these specialists out of these places and put them in like a specialist center and then the money that would be saved from that is used in transporting the patient to the specialty center. So when I'm looking now at nuclear medicine and I'm seeing administrators who are, sometimes their friends, sometimes not so much, um, trying to make the economic decision. Do I hire somebody who is a nuclear medicine physician to only do nuclear medicine? Or do I hire that guy that can kind of uh, get by on it, but also he can do all of the other things we need, which in the, this case is radiology how do i sell the value of having the nuclear medicine physician who focuses only on that area to that administrator is that a fair question
0: uh yeah it is and and the situation is that a a nuclear medicine if, if this is a moderate size hospital say mm-hmm. and they're doing a small amount of nuclear medicine and the, one of the reasons they're doing a small amount is because they're not doing it very well, because radiologists are doing it, radiologists with four months of training. The argument would be that the hiring a nuclear medicine doc would build the practice, it would improve the care of the patients because of the studies that are not being done, and in the area of therapy, it would it would be a... a huge potential growth area, particularly in prostate cancer. And there are an awful lot of prostate cancer patients out there. This is a remarkably effective therapy in prostate cancer. And you could be doing five or six a day at almost any decent-sized hospital. And this is a, a potential huge revenue generator. The cost of the radiopharmaceutical is around $40,000. And there's always a substantial markup when the hospital delivers this to the patients. And there's actually large technical charges that are accrued associated with therapy. Similar is seen with chemotherapy and radiotherapy, for instance. So it's very likely within a year or two of hiring that doc, they would be bringing in far more than their salary into the hospital.
4: So do you see this as, for lack of a better word, the hindrance is just people aren't as informed about this kind of stuff? Because as you're well, describing that, that sounds well, like a Well, that's win. right.
0: They're not informed. And what has to happen as if, say, a new nuclear medicine person arrives at the hospital is they have to go out and educate their customers, as it mm-hmm. were, the referring physicians. You have to give grand rounds in surgery and in internal medicine and in the nodal and OBGYN. There's all sorts of places where we are underutilized. And just a couple weeks ago, a group of us gave grand rounds at endocrinology talking about uh, thyroid therapy. And the other way to build business is tumor boards. And that's been huge. And if you actively participate in tumor boards, people become aware of your existence and they begin using the therapies, your diagnostic modalities. That's why we're doing 30 PET scans a day here currently, because of our activity in tumor boards over the years. Mm. So, if I want to
3: make sure that I'm understanding this properly, since we've kind of talked about the business of medicine, and for better or worse, it is in large part of business. Patients, customers, patients, however you want to see them, you they're a finite resource, right? So, it's, I don't want to say it's a zero sum game, but in a sense, like if you are treating somebody for a certain condition using nuclear medicine. They are not being treated for that condition by the other specialist using whatever therapy that they would approach it with. I just want to make sure that I'm understanding this. In my mind, I'm thinking there's a nuclear medicine physician who's taken three years of residency and is now a practicing competent nuclear medicine physician out in the field. And his target population that he would help the most is the population that maybe radiation oncologists are targeting. And so those are the patients that you would be pulling away from? Is that reasonable or is it? Well,
0: yeah, the way to succeed is to have a better product. And the trouble with radiation oncology and prostate cancer, for instance, is that there's uncertainty where the disease has spread to. Generally, if a patient had recurrent prostate cancer, as evidenced by rising PSA, they would irradiate the prostate bed. Sometimes that worked. Most of the time it didn't, and because the disease had already spread. We now have a imaging agent that uh, can identify that spread. We've only had it for the last two years. This makes a huge difference. Yeah. Now, once you've identified that, then you could point the X-ray beam at these various spots. And the radi- Radiation oncologists speak of spot welding that, and go zap, <laughs> zap, 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 and treat them. Each time they treat, though, they're treating, they're irradiating normal tissue, and that can cause real problems at, at very high levels. And the agent that just targets the tumor and with minimal uptake in normal tissues is far more effective. And we're seeing evidence of that. And so And that's
3: it, because it, it targets, I'm guessing, high metabolizing cells, sort of like chemotherapy might. Th-
0: well, that's FDG does that, but uh, the the target the targeting that I'm talking about is where there's been upregulation of receptors on the surface of the cell. Okay. So it isn't necessarily related to metabolism. Okay.
1: I'm the guy who people have to explain things carefully to on the show because I'm not a doctor. But it sounds to me You're like... You're a
0: good man, though.
3: I we're, do my best. Happy to have you around. I do my I'm
1: best, thriving. people.
5: We yes, we, we love Dave. You.
1: But, oh, wow. <laughs> wasn't even fishing for compliments. <laughs> so the receptors on the tumor are different from the receptors on normal that's correct. cells. And so that's the mechanism by which nuclear medicine therapies are targeted.
0: Yes. Okay. We, we I got it. Small molecules or antibodies to target those uh, okay, receptors. Okay.
1: Short codes. If this episode is worth listening to this far, it's worth sharing. So blast us on your socials, and if you want a sticker for your trouble, send us a screenshot. Thanks
2: a question regarding the patient experience for somebody like let's just say somebody has cancer prostate cancer and they have the option to go to either a radiation oncologist or to a nuclear medicine doctor you've already said that when you go to a radiation oncologist you have the possibility of irradiating normal tissue and that sort of thing but when you say that you're like seeding tumors with like radioactive material or sending radioactive material to specifically the tumors, what sort of side effects are there for those patients? Yeah, because
1: I think we're all used to hearing about radiation right.
2: mm-hmm.
1: causing, you know, nasty side effects in yeah, cancer well, and
0: there, there are side effects, and I, we can't pretend there aren't. Uh, in radioiodine therapy for thyroid disease, for instance, there's uptake in salivary glands. And actually, there's a fairly high incidence of dry mouth that develops years afterwards Mm -hmm. in these patients. But we have killed their thyroid. So it's a risk-benefit argument there. In the neuroendocrine tumor therapy, the target normal organ is the kidneys. And that actually limits the dose that we can give to the tumor. And there... There have been very few instances of renal failure that have occurred secondary to that, but that's what we're trying to avoid. That's in prostate cancer, it, the target is, again, the salivary glands, and dry mouth is a problem in those patients. Gotcha. There are efforts, research efforts, underway to block the uptake into the salivary glands, mm-hmm. but so far they haven't really made much progress there. Gotcha it's close to a magic bullet but there are normal organs that take it up
2: gotcha so, so you, oh, oh, sorry. go ahead i'm sorry i was just gonna say so if i had a cancer that could potentially be treated by like regular chemotherapy or nuclear medicine it kind of sounds like nuclear medicine has way less side... Like, I'd take dry mouth over losing my hair and
0: oh, yeah. like feel yeah, nauseous. No, we don't get alopecia with uh, any of our agents. When we first started with this targeted radiotherapy a few years ago, not, not the iodine, but the, the new ones, we were using amino acid solution to decrease the uptake in the kidneys that caused terrible nausea in all of the patients. We've managed, though, to narrow it down to just arginine lysine, and that's what they get now, and they have no nausea, and they usually eat their lunch during the therapy. And and on the prostate side, there's no sensation on the part of the patients. Hmm. So you're right, and patients have commented to me, actually, that, that chemotherapy was pretty awful, yeah. and they sure like the therapy they're getting now.
5: So do you think over time, as medicine continues to evolve, more patients are going to opt for this type of treatment?
0: Well, I think so. The patients opt for it, and also the referring docs opt uh, yeah. for it. Yeah. And that's critical, of course. But the, the patient-directed literature is, it helps them in that way. And certainly there are prostate cancer interest groups, and there's neuroendocrine tumor interest groups, and there are all sorts of other interest groups that communicate about this. And so the patients are going to be asking their docs, what about the nuke-med therapy? And in many places currently, they're just plain not prepared to do it. So they have to refer them to other places. And some of our patients that we get are particularly neuroendocrine tumor patients over the years. Those have been referred from way outside of Iowa.
5: So clearly because of this gap and provide physicians in nuclear medicine and a potential need for patients to go this type of therapy This this kind of exacerbate this gap in healthcare a little bit more that's right yeah. okay
3: i'm thinking of adam rodman mm-hmm. what i affectionately call rodman's dictum if there are two treatments that are comparably good for the patient go with the one that sucks less for the patient
0: yeah
3: and uh, it sounds like this one, this is, so, so here's my question. I know that Dave wanted to talk about something else, but like I, this is, for me, I think, a very important question. You've got med students now that are in their third year, they're thinking about where they're going to apply. Who is the student that you think would thrive in nuclear medicine?
0: The students who have had prior experience before med school in engineering, physics, chemistry, Those people really catch on to what we're doing in nucmed very quickly, and I fall into that category. I did electrical engineering.
3: I was actually going to ask you what your Uh, Ph.D. uh,
0: was in. uh, The Ph.D. is in biophysics. Biophysics, perfect. Uh, I I could tell you more about that if we have time. So I look for people with a strong technical background like that, and uh, the next uh, area of expertise I would like to see is physiology internal medicine type people Mm -hmm. and and in fact i did internal medicine before i did nuclear medicine and in the past that was typically the route that people came through getting into nuclear medicine was was through internal medicine in in general surgery anatomy sort of interest is secondary in nuclear medicine it's not negative in any sense you do have to know your anatomy that's part of being a doctor but that's but physiology is a much stronger need and if good understanding of physiology is essential to yeah. doing nuclear medicine well
3: and you get a lot of patient contact you're communicating with the patients talking to the patients and there's procedural aspect to it right
0: there it's more than most radiologists do it we do have There's a few procedures, Uh, lymphatic mapping is probably the one where we have the most uh, direct interaction and we actually poke the patients. But the therapy patients, we wind up sitting down and talking to them and uh, explaining things to them several times. I find that particularly gratifying because they're usually very grateful for what we're doing. Just
5: to piggyback off of that, what is your favorite part about working in nuclear medicine?
0: Well, my my favorite part really is the interaction with the residents. Uh, I really enjoy discussing things with the residents and uh, teaching the residents. That's that, that's that makes my day every day. That's one of the reasons I come to work every day.
1: And if you were a resident, what do you think the, their favorite part of, of working in nuclear medicine would be?
0: Um. Uh, that's hard to say. I think it's the challenge of understanding how to use tracer technique in, in diagnosing and treating patients. It's a fairly novel concept to most people, but it becomes more and more intuitive with time as, as they do it. And, and, and in the therapy side, because it isn't just a one-shot deal, it's typically four to six cycles. And so when they come back for the second and third and fourth cycle, that's when you actually get very positive feedback that makes you know you're making a difference. And that's one reason I think surgery is so attractive, that you do something and immediately the patient, you've taken his tumor out or you've fixed his arm or whatever, you get immediate gratification and thanks from the patients. Now we're seeing it on the therapy side. We don't see that on the diagnostic side. We find lots of well, mostly we're looking for evidence of metastatic disease, and so we don't get a big thank you when we (laughs) succeed there.
1: Yeah. So it sounds like internal medicine is the kind of
0: internal medicine is the and if you because there is
1: a lot of you know for our listeners who may not you know sort of understand like internal medicine is the is sort of the it's to to me it sounds like the intellectual side of medicine very much the intellectual side of medicine there's a lot of problem solving there's a lot of deep knowledge um, yeah and
0: we do a lot of problem solving every day i'm doing problem solving i'm forming hypotheses Mm -hmm. and and alternate hypotheses and how to uh, sort these out and answer the question yeah it's really it's fun i enjoy it so how
5: much of your day do you spend developing those new plans or teaching residents or like interacting with patients
0: well, it's probably most of the day. They, we We do 20 to 30 conventional nuclear medicine studies today and 30 to 35 PET scans a day. In terms of the physician participation, we either oversee the nuclear medicine clinic or we oversee the PET clinic. And we're working towards where and I can see this in another couple of years, there'll be a third obligation you'd spend your day overseeing the therapy clinic. Mm. But now it's PET or nuclear medicine, and it's looking at the images, going over the images with the residents, generally giving the residents the first shot, what do you think, and then explaining things to them. And, and also we usually discuss what, what do you think is going to happen next, in terms of their continued workup or what therapy are they going to get, and I think that's an important part to think about, understanding the impact of what we do.
1: One of the questions that that I have learned to ask people when they talk about you know selecting a career um, in medicine is it's easy to talk about the things that you know you would get out of in being a part of a certain specialty. What do you think a medical student would have to give up in order to? Start along this path?
0: I really can't think of anything okay. there. Yeah, that's fine. It. I certainly don't feel I've given anything up. I'm not a surgeon, so I've given up the OR, <laughs> uh, as it were, and I haven't been in you the may, OR. You may not have wanted to be, though. <laughs> uh,
3: Happily giving it up. Uh, you know. yeah.
5: yeah.
0: So, no, I don't think that's a problem in nuclear medicine. Okay.
1: Cool. So, Let's say that, you know, these med students here are interested in nuclear medicine. How should they start preparing for that?
0: Well, learning some nuclear physics might help. That was definitely
3: one of my favorite classes undergrad. I have three classes that I enjoyed above all other classes, and nuclear physics was really? definitely in really? the top three. Well,
0: you really should uh, come around and talk to me. All right, I, I did <laughs> uh,
1: physics of music in college, so you know I don't, yes, I don't that, know if that that's helps.
0: Probably not going to help. <laughs> <me>. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. No, I don't. I, well, you, I had a requirement to. Fulfill. I mean, it's useful. It, this is not absolutely essential, but it's useful if you know some physics. It's useful if you know some chemistry and math. Uh, those are all useful characteristics. But uh, if you say, well, gee, I want to be a nuke med doc, I guess I better study physics uh, or chemistry, that really isn't the way to do it. You've already studied chemistry or physics. One of the questions on the blurb you guys sent me was what resources should you uh, are available and so i googled nuclear medicine
1: (laughs) as we might
0: (laughs) and that's exactly what you should do there's a terrific wikipedia article on nuclear medicine Mm -hmm.
3: you said there's a national like there's a college of nuclear medicine
0: right there's the society of nuclear medicine and molecular imaging snmmi and that's the main u.s society and it's actually an international society that has their website has something to be desired i have to admit i I noticed
1: but but, but, you know work your way through it you'll be fine but if
0: you go to their website and you click on the tab that says residents there's some worthwhile information and there's some podcasts in there that you might find interesting but again if you google it there, there are a number of large universities i think Number two on the list after the Wikipedia is the Johns Hopkins website. Johns Hopkins has been one of the premier programs in nuclear medicine for decades. And so that's really quite good information there. If you want technical information, besides the Society of Nuclear Medicine and Molecular Imaging, there's the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, which is based in Vienna. And they have a huge library of free books there on nuclear medicine. You get download PDFs of books. And they, their main thrust of the IAEA is to support the development of nuclear medicine in developing countries. And so it really is right from the ground up in terms of the materials they have there. Uh but in, and at individual universities, you should come and talk to the chief of nuclear medicine or the chief of the, may not be the same as the director of the residency program. Mm-hmm. Here, Janet Pollard's the director of the residency program. Yusuf Mender's the director. I used to be director, but I stepped down a couple of years ago, after 20 years, to let the next generation get a chance to do it.
1: Do you, do you welcome
0: shadowing? Oh, I do, yeah. yes. I had a first-year medical student who shadowed me this past year, and and then we went on and did a research project together, and she presented it at the research fair a couple of months ago.
3: Just in case there are listeners out there at medical schools or undergrad institutions that find themselves far away from the nearest nuclear medicine program, I, I say this because my wife goes to a school that doesn't have a lot of these program directors nearby, you can find them online. I I have a feeling. I'm willing to bet, especially considering the size of of the specialty and, and the interest in helping it grow. If you contacted, say, the program director at Johns Hopkins or here at Iowa, even yeah. if you live in I don't know Montana or yeah Tallahassee, they will they would be happy to talk to you about. I'm happy to food. talk to anybody. Yeah, I and I, <laughs> I suspect
1: that this is true for many people oh, yeah. who are. I find that especially in 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 medicine and the sciences in general, people like to talk about. You know, their work and they like to pass it on to the next generation. You know, if you're, you know, at all curious about these things, you know, shoot an email, ask them if they wouldn't mind popping on Zoom or whatever to chat for a little bit. If yeah. you're distant from these places, it's, a, it's, you. we really live in an amazing age where, you know, you can reach out to people from far away and learn a few things. Um, and it, and it there turns is a people-
0: list of all the programs on the ACGME website. Sure. It's not easy to find. Their website couldn't use some help, too.
1: Yeah, we need to open the Michael Graham, the Dr. Michael Graham web design consultancy
0: (laughs) firm. I I do give my opinion from time to time. I will also,
1: I will work in that firm as well.
3: I will say, though, there is something, like, really gratifying when you get to a site. I did this when I was applying to schools for undergrad. Because I didn't know how to apply for college, so I was looking at their websites and stuff. Yeah. You get to one that's just like genuinely not good. Like objectively, this is just not built well, and you're still excited about it. That's how you know that's the problem.
1: Well, you made it to finished. the second break. You tolerate us, if you can, consider donating or buying a sticker or something. Visit theshortcode.com and help us do stuff without having to beg a dean for money. Thanks. All right. Well, I want to uh, get to our listener question. Um, our pal Molly. Our pal Molly. Molly. We got a listener question that I hope you can help with, Dr. Graham. Molly sent an email to the at gmail.com She was worried about how hard it might be to have a life outside of medicine. And let's let's hear from Molly.
5: Hello,
2: my name is Molly and I am a pre-med sophomore. I just want to start off by saying that I love the podcast. I really enjoy listening to it on my runs or on my long walks to class. I am very passionate about medicine and I'm really enjoying my pre-med coursework. One thing that I have learned in undergrad so far is that a good work, life balance is very important to me. This means that I prioritize sleep, make time for exercise, and relax every once in a while, even if that means I miss out on some time studying. My school is known to be pretty rigorous, but I have managed to get decent grades without losing sight of myself or sacrificing my happiness. My question is, how difficult is it to have this balance in medical school, as a resident, and even as a physician? I am not afraid to work hard, but don't want to sacrifice my happiness and health.
1: It's a great question. You know, so what we're really talking about is this: is the three main periods of an MD trainee's life. You know, we're talking about med school, residency, and then as an attending. So, let's start with med school. You guys are stuck into it. How Do do you find that medicine is eating up your existence at this point? Let's start
3: with the M1s. You're new at this. How's it going? M1s and PA1s. M1s and PA1s.
5: So, I have the mindset of not trying to pour from an empty cup. It's kind of the guidance I have. So, I prioritize myself at times to make sure that I can learn properly. So I, I know if I don't get enough sleep every night, if I'm not eating good, if I'm not exercising, I've noticed that it's harder for me to learn the information that we're supposed to learn for the next test. So I feel like by putting my wellness on the forefront of my studies, it's actually helping me retain the information that we're expected to know
1: yeah there's something very important about the sleeping and consolidation of memory
5: yeah Um, i feel like we've had a lot of conversations about how your brain learns information and if you don't take care of your brain you're not going to be able to build off of the knowledge that we are expected to know so props to you molly for
4: yeah no kidding
5: putting like your life first ahead of studying sometimes it might feel guilty in some ways to be doing that
1: i know that's something we hear yeah. sometimes i feel guilty about like taking care of myself or like n- not studying basically i feel guilty about not studying
3: so don't feel guilty molly don't. for your long walks
1: yeah.
5: on
3: the beach yeah. i don't know if she lives near a beach she didn't that was the say a beach
1: but you know like let's assume that's yeah. that sounds fun yeah.
3: yeah for her mental health
5: yeah. yeah if you don't put the things that is important to you first and you lose that part of yourself i feel like it's also easy to get burnt out in the process too
4: yeah <laughs> just to piggyback on that um I, it's hard but you got to be deliberate i had some advice before i came here whereas you're going to want to study you're going to want to do these things but make sure you make time for yourself so molly top notch that's props to you man that's not a hard that's not an easy thing to do to kind of put that stuff to the side
1: yeah because uh, you know from what i hear
4: from you guys over the years
1: um the word <laughs> medicine will take everything you give it yep 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 and 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 you know so it's important to be intentional about that otherwise you know
3: it's gas it's gas Sorry, there's an M1 that keeps saying that. Okay. Like but in the sense that, since we are on the subject of chemistry... This and is physics, some of
1: that slang that you young people use, isn't it? In the
3: sense that it will fill the shape and size of the container of your life that you give to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No matter what you put in there, it will fill it. So and you can
1: make different decisions about that. You absolutely can. There's plenty of reasons for people to to be like, well, this is my life. This is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. I'm, this is my calling. That's X, absolutely. Y, and Z. And so I'm going to give it everything... That I've got. I mean, it wouldn't be my way. Um it's sure not mine. Yeah, that's not one of my goals for this. You was have a,
3: a committed, loving, happy relationship that you're maintaining over here in med school, aren't you? So,
2: yeah, that's honestly, I think, one of the things that has helped me the most from like falling into a pit of like, notes basically when i come to school <laughs> a I bit of, of
3: notes <laughs> well, <laughs> that, that could have been so much worse <laughs>
2: <laughs> when i come to school i treat it exactly like a job so i get up at you know whatever time in the morning like seven recently i get to school around eight o'clock and i don't leave until about five thirty. and then when i'm at home i just do home things every once in a blue moon like i'll do some school work if i need to but like my time at home is the time that I spend with my family, and that is really important to me. Um, so yeah, I, it really just depends on who you are and what you value, but your personal values need to come before
4: you're studying. The work will always be there. The There's work, always yeah, more always to do. There.
2: Yeah, and I'm not saying don't study, but like you need to be a person. If you're not a person, you can't study if you're not a person, right?
1: From the lofty position that you occupy at this point, Dr. Graham. How would you evaluate that advice?
0: Oh, I think that's critical. I I have to get enough sleep, too. And in med school when I was looking to what specialty I was considering surgery, my father was a surgeon. This was a natural thing to do. I did I was at UCSF and I After doing the the general clerkship in surgery, I signed up for three advanced surgery clerkships. And the first one was vascular surgery at UCSF, and it was grueling. And it was rounds at 5.30 in the morning, and it was getting home at 7.30 at night. It was on every other night. And I couldn't, I didn't get enough sleep. It was quite clear I wasn't going to be able to tolerate surgery. And I'm convinced there are people who need less sleep, and there are people who need more sleep. And people who need more sleep should not be surgeons. will um, <laughs> be
1: surgeons, maybe not do OB.
0: nuke yeah. Mad has, and I, I think I was aware of this right from the beginning, but it's one of the better specialties for getting enough sleep. Mm-hmm. But right up there with dermatology. Oh, wow.
1: Because He's really selling it. Yes. Right. Wow. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs>
0: we are on call at night. We're rarely called. I might keep the beeper near my near the bed, but it never goes off. Or, and and of course you never say never in medicine. <laughs> no, not but it's definitely very going off rare. Tonight, Maybe you know. once a month I might I might be woken up. Yeah. And what uh, kinds of things are you woken yeah,
1: up for in
0: Oh well there are emergency studies that occur okay. in nuclear medicine and a GI bleed is okay. probably sure. the top of the list. Okay. Uh, ventilation perfusion study for uh, pulmonary embolus. Mm-hmm. Generally, they'll get a CT for that. But if the patient's allergic to contrast, then whoa, oh, mm-hmm. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, nuclear medicine studies are done.
5: Okay. So th- um,
1: this brings up a uh, uh, something I was thinking about when I was uh, cogitating around Molly's question, which is you know we talk a lot about work life balance in medicine, and I've heard it said i've read it i can't remember exactly where i got this idea from but that it's not really a great phrase it's more like i don't know maybe work-life accommodation balance sort of suggests that there that you give it 50 50 Mm. and it probably isn't ever
3: have you ever that
1: way uh, you ever done plate spinning N- n- oddly no i have not done plates you spinning. seem like i've guy. seen it like- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> i didn't know i gave i gave plate, plate spinning, plate spinning, spinning vibes. in,
3: in <laughs> my younger days i have spun a plate or two
1: i would expect nothing less you give plate spinning vibes Definitely. <laughs>
3: Definitely. i am in medical school i'm a father i'm a husband sure i have other a plethora of responsibilities all self-imposed but a lot of responsibilities no two things can be priority. I'm actually really, I despise the plural of priority. There can only be one, really. I mean, that's
1: kind of the, yeah.
3: Um, yeah. In fact, there wasn't a plural until, I don't know, the 1950s got a hold of it, but whatever. You can really only have one thing that is number one at any given moment, right? And, you know, that's something that I talk about with my wife. Like, it isn't the dishes today, you know, it isn't the bills today. Today, it was that test that I just took. Mm-hmm. And, i got two hours of sleep so i'm not the poster child for healthy habits but also it's is on me i didn't prepare properly this week so i used my time i prioritized other things something else yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and i took care of some friends this week that was very important yeah. i helped these crazy pa students that want to throw this party tonight not us no not us two other pa students that they're friends with <laughs> so there have been priorities there have been plates that i have spun And while those are spinning, then I can go back to the one that's teetering, the one that I need to focus on. Sometimes that's medical school. Sometimes that's my family. I have, I say this a lot on the podcast, but I have family that lives out of state. And so there have definitely been times where I'll take a test and I will bomb it and then I will jump on a plane immediately and I'll go see my family because frankly, that week, the priority is not the test. I can recover Mm -hmm. from that bad grade. I can study extra hard for the next one. But this week, the plate that's teetering is family. And that's going to be your entire life, especially in medicine, because- Those priorities are significant. You know, most fields of medicine, people really can live or die based on your ability to help them. That said, that plate doesn't have to always have your finger on it, you know? You're going to have other things in your life that make you who you are that are worth spending time on that you have to focus on.
1: Well, then this seems like a good time to pivot to the residency part of this question. Because my impression of residency is that in many cases maybe not nuclear medicine maybe not dermatology but in many cases you are kind of working super hard maybe harder than you've ever worked in your life even in medical school is that the impression the, the that current, you guys have the current especially law. you Dr. Graham and maybe in
0: in in internal medicine and in surgery you're you're responsible overnight for the patients typically maybe four nights four, four, every four night and you're up all night and i went through that yeah. during my internship and in my residency in internal medicine in nuclear medicine that's not so as an attending i don't get called very often well the residents don't get called very often either yeah. most of the time the residents get a good night's sleep So uh, it actually is not, it's not a painful residency. It's very dependent on specialty. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In surgery, it can be really brutal. Yeah.
3: Uh, I will say that for those that aren't aware, the current law is that residents are not allowed to work more than 80 hours a week. Right. That is down from what it was before. Yeah. I think in my lifetime, Mm -hmm. the cap was 120 hours and I'm not like Aren't the oldest person in this room hours you know or even that with those 80 hours that you talk to residents in those more demanding fields like OBGYN or internal medicine and they will tell you those are the official hours and there is an unspoken and i would say immoral and unethical <laughs> expectation from their superiors that they are charting and they're doing other things off the clock yeah and uh,
4: optional required stuff
3: Uh, Yeah, yeah, Yeah. yeah. and I'm just going to go ahead and say it's wrong, but that is the expectation in medicine, and uh, yeah, it's a lot harder to keep plates spinning when you're doing that kind of stuff.
1: I I think the message for Molly in the residency phase is that it very much depends on your specialty. Um, Obviously, you can choose which specialty you go into based on lifestyle choices or based on lifestyle in that specialty. That is, to some extent, up to you. Once you've made that choice... If you've chosen a specialty where, you know, like OB or surgery or whatever, where the demands are high, yeah, it's largely, it's somewhat more, somewhat less in under your control. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to do what you've got to do, at least during the residency phase.
3: I will say when you're looking at your life, I'm going to keep the plate analogy because it works for me. Sometimes there are going to be certain years in your life, like Molly, when you're preparing to take the MCAT, there's going to be about a six month block where a lot of things fall by the wayside for that MCAT you know that's very temporary and then you will be back to being yourself again and i will say i don't know for pa students i didn't take the gmat Jerry. Jerry. okay yeah i would say the mcat is the hardest thing about medical school i think once you've done that everything in medical school is not any harder than that but your that,
1: mileage may vary if you're, yeah. if you're having a hard time in medical school i don't want to invalidate I, that
3: experience i'm not saying medical school isn't hard i'm just yeah. saying the, the mcat was it is properly designed to to prepare you for what it means to study just a ton of things yeah. that said that residency is kind of the same thing. Like you can look at my wife, for example, she was very interested in OB and, and the, the patients that she would be able to work with the types of medicine that she would be doing for her career. And she sat down with me one day and she said, I cannot do that residency. I just, I cannot value what's on the other side of it enough that I can make that my priority for four years. Other people can And so she's right now, her choice is pathology, similar to nuclear medicine is going to be one of those where it's you don't get called in the middle of the night to look at slides very often yeah yeah. you know and that's because for her that's her priority right she wants to do the medicine but she also the work-life balance is important to her yeah and and you get to make that call for yourself
2: yeah and i think i'd also like to point out that like we talk about work-life balance as if like or especially like in the med school phase where we're like oh yeah like things are going well, like, I I sleep at night or whatever the case is, but the truth is... What a bar. (laughs) Well, Jeff said, like, we make choices, and the important thing is that we accept those consequences because every choice that we make has a consequence that comes along with it, and so, like, if I prioritize my sleep and then bomb a test, like, you know, later, like, you just, like, you have to be okay with the fact that, like, sometimes like, not everything is going to go well, and also, like, when it comes to residency, there are going to be times when, like, it sounds like at least you are like a quote-unquote like slave to the hospital or whatever but like those ridiculous rules about how like oh it's like it's an 80-hour work week but like you have to like you know do extra stuff outside of that do you really have to you know like it, again it's is your identity only doctor or is your identity also person and like will there be consequences to not doing those things over 80 hours absolutely yeah but like do you have to do them absolutely not yeah. and like that is i just like i don't know i think that's important to,
3: to i will say here. one of the things that i love about medicine so far with my experience working as a tech before medical school now in medical school and and going into clerkship soon I love the fact that you can't be perfect and medicine forces you as a career. I mean, you feel free to to jump in Dr. Graham, but it kind of forces you to to face the fact that you are fallible. And that has allowed me so much personal growth to just be able to accept that, that you're right. Like today I need to sleep. And that does mean that I, I did poorly on that quiz or that paper that I had to write, or I have to do well on this test. And that means today I am not the world's greatest dad. And it breaks your heart, but like that's part of the give and take of recognizing that I am human. Yeah. And medicine allows you to face your humanity in a very, for me at least, a very beautiful way.
1: I think the other thing to remember... So, so yeah, the hospital owns you during residency to some extent, to to a large extent, depending on your specialty. So if we move into physicianhood we get hoods? We, yes, you do. This so is the yeah. perk they don't tell you about. <laughs> is the one that you, you get to keep them here. M- my perception is that you can begin to make choices as to how much you work. Again, specialty dependent. You may not make as much money if you make the choice to work less, but it begins to become under your control. And that's more like the rest of us. Than residency. So, you know, I could choose to work part time. Yeah. I could choose a different job. I mean, within certain constraints, you know, like it's just, you know, you start to get to make choices about things like that. Is that your perception, Dr. Graham?
0: Yeah, that's perfectly true. I know a number of Nuke Med docs that are working half time. Yeah. Most of them are females, actually. Uh, yeah, people and, who
1: have other obligations outside yeah, of, yeah. Yeah. Or other interests uh, outside
0: and, of work, and they're paid half and they work half, and you just don't see them uh, the rest of the time. And this sort of thing goes off every once in a while. <laughs> <And they're, laughs> say, that's that not the call. Hurt? Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, probably. Uh, I don't know. I may have just leaned on it. I'm not getting a look. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Perks of nuke med. Yeah. I, love that. I did. I did
3: meet a doctor once. I'm um, actually shadowed him before medical school. He wrote my letter. He was making well well above the median physician salary, yeah. which is significant already um, in his position um, in the Midwest just because he was hyper-specialized and good at his job. And, and uh, he kind of the same thing. He's like, you know, he's got um, several kids. His wife was a stay-at-home mom, but he's like, I like my kids. And so he moved to a different state, got a job. It was, I think they allowed him three-quarter time, essentially. And now he makes significantly less, and he hangs out with his kids, and he loves it. Mm -hmm. He is like the t-ball coach now, you know, and like that's his thing. And yeah, you can make that trade-off if that's, like you said, you'll be making half pay, but you get half time. And and if that works for you, that works for you.
0: Well, in general, our salaries are quite generous. Uh, Once you've paid off your student loans, then you really don't need the full-time salary. Uh, And so, yes, you can work part-time
5: i was advised by a provider i shadowed before pa school that when i started looking at jobs was to advocate for myself and ask not to work full-time right away especially if i wanted to have kids pretty soon just to give myself a buffer in terms of like transitioning in and out of like full-time and part-time when i do want to have kids and if that's something that i would consider doing so i think you have a lot of leeway at least maybe from a PA perspective on what you want your schedule to be and the ability to advocate for yourself on these are my needs. These are my priorities. Sorry for the S, but, um, and some Jeff
1: hates you.
3: Look at him. Sorry. (laughs) Let
5: it go this time. I'll make it up. Just this once. Okay.
3: Singular once.
5: Once. (laughs) Um, so when you do start looking for your jobs, at least, or I would encourage individuals to take time to think about what do I want my future to look like? And how can I communicate this to my supervisor to make sure that my needs can also be met and I can do the job that I still love to do?
3: Mm-hmm. And Molly, I, I would go ahead and encourage you to do that same thing when you're looking at residencies and medical schools. I've I, I mentioned I will brag about my child all day long. I love him. This is a great school to be a parent. There are other schools that are less enthused about you being a parent, but Iowa, for example, is really good at that. If if that is something that you want in your future as a medical student, this is a place for it, right? And there are others, depending on what your priority is in life, there might be other things. Maybe you want to live near family. There are schools that are going to be more accommodating to, to your needs. Think about that. Absolutely. yeah
1: mm-hmm. I think the caveat there is that most people probably get one acceptance
3: that's fair um, okay. and, and so
1: they may not have as many choices yeah. um, but,
4: but when, when you're also, looking yeah but when you're looking when, you yeah. Apply.
3: when you, yeah. yeah I mean don't the, I think the big rule here is in uh, this this is good advice for everybody don't apply to a school that you don't actually want to go to mm-hmm. yes. same yep. with residency don't apply yep. to a residency program that you don't actually want to go to yep. just you know, because we you're say you that we
1: tell that. students that every but every year there's people who are very disappointed in the residency they got <laughs> because they maybe applied to residencies that they weren't really all that interested and in. they thought yeah. they would be backups so yeah
3: <laughs> it happens and i appreciate that but at the same time like are you going to be miserable for four years like you're going to hate your life for four years i don't know maybe just find places that you don't hate
2: Yeah, I think also it has a lot to do with the people that are at the schools that you're at. So, for example, there are places that are traditionally very competitive and a lot of the students that go there end up seeing themselves as quote unquote very competitive. And so they act that way as well. and that can be extremely toxic. I can personally say that like Carver is truly amazing when it comes to that kind of thing. Yep. The people yep. here are so kind. Um, they're so thoughtful. And, uh, and, yet, and
3: trusting. And yet. They'll just send you their Starlink box like to your house. They'll just like did, let you have their that's stuff. That's how Jeff and I originally
2: <laughs> met. In fact, I sent you two Starlings. <laughs>
3: this is true.
1: And, and yet, we still do pretty well on the national exams and
4: things like that. Yeah. And definitely. I would think I would like to say that it's maybe because of this I,
5: I would absolutely. I would agree. agree.
4: In yeah. in a hospital setting in your end career, you're gonna be working with colleagues. You are not You're not an island. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. When when we got into uh, the PA school here, they set us down and said, "You are no longer competing with each other. Like you you are working together. We're looking at working with providers. Start practicing that now, because then when you get into the field, it doesn't feel so weird."
3: Yeah, Yeah. something. And also that that sort of
1: helps with the you know sort of work life accommodation slash balance thing too. Is if you can rely on your teammates when you need, that's also a terrific thing to to sort of look out for when you're thinking about your your future.
2: Absolutely. No, really, all I was saying is that some people have the misconception that they are only going to be the most successful version of themselves if they go to like a Hopkins. But the truth is, like, I might even argue that I am going to be a better doctor now that I have experienced a place where people are actually kind and caring and work together as a team. And also
1: keep in mind that every school has to be accredited. And so they that too. pretty much do all the same things. They may yeah, do them yeah. in different ways, but you'll get the same knowledge when you're yeah. done.
3: Yeah. I, I will say that the, being a member of several like national medical student associations and organizations, medical school is equally wonderful and terrible everywhere.
5: <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, there's always something that's... It's, there it's there
3: it finding the culture that matches you. Right. right. But I will say, Dave and I were talking about this maybe yesterday, that humanity as a whole, we put a lot of skill points into cooperativity. Like, we just... We're built for it, and it's nice to be around people that recognize that and work together Absolutely. to get things done. Yes. I think, Dr. Graham, can you imagine your practice without the people around you that make it work?
0: That's a huge issue. That you've got to get along with the technologists. You've got to get along with the residents. Got to get along with the secretaries. And I do. And I joke with the techs all the time. I, we organized a softball game team with them. <laughs> it's, I like the techs and they like me.
1: My, my, my father was a physician assistant. And one of the things that he, he used to say was, you know, do your best to get along with everybody. Treat everybody as excellently as you can because you never know when somebody's going to save your ass because they like you. That's and you know so there's a selfish component there but also like it's just more fun i think it's just more fun yeah. to be
0: yeah yeah, yeah. It, pleasant it with is. people it's, i i enjoy going to work every day because of a strong friendly relationship yeah yeah well we
3: them. just met dr graham and he invited us on a ski trip in march so we're really excited about
1: that <laughs> listeners you're That's all invited just park <laughs> city right
3: Everybody, yeah. Yeah. we'll see you there yeah. <laughs>
1: well dr graham thanks for visiting with us today what's the best way You've already talked about this. I don't need to say this. Go to the various websites that we've mentioned Hopkins, the SNN, SNN,
0: SNMMI, SNMMI
1: yep. website. Check out that crappy website. But
0: Wikipedia is a good description of the field and what it involves.
1: Yeah. Well, that's our show. Jeff, Olivia, Noah, Fallon, thanks for joining uh, me and dr graham today thanks for thanks having for having us thank
0: you A blast. Okay. thanks yeah.
1: and what kind of fallout would there be if i didn't thank you short Coats for making us part of your week if you're new here and you like what you heard today follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available spotify apple podcasts uh, google podcasts youtube You won't have trouble finding us. Thank you to the producer of this episode, A.J. Chowdhury. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine, student government, and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Hi, short coats. Look, life and medical education... Life in America, life in the world, is often difficult. And I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need